Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Laura Ayad, who is a professor of art history at Skidmore College, perhaps a university, in Upper State, New York. In this conversation, we dive deep, or as deep as Laura will let us, uh, which goes to say pretty darn deep, into art history. What is its purpose? What is its methodology? We also spend a lot of time on her specialty, which is Egyptian art and the ways in which representations have kind of sewn together people's identity as an ethnic group, as a race, as a nation, as an individual. And we also kind of end up laying the groundwork for deeper, further conversations into these topics, specifically how art and artifact inform our lives. So get ready for a great lesson. It was kind of like sitting through a lecture where I got to guide the, uh, I don't know, I, you can't really guide her. She's like one of those tomahawk missiles. You just kind of press the button and it goes. So strap on in. Here is Laura Ayad. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I like the green screen behind you. I like the lack of the wall of books. It's like you're not trying to prove anything. <laughs> well, I'm not I'm not at my office now. I actually can't go to my office for more than half an hour at a time unless I want to get tested for COVID on my campus. So Why is it just swirling yeah. around the HVAC unit? Is that what's going on there? I, I don't really understand it. I mean, we have offices where we can just like, we can, you know, close the door. We're in like our own enclosed room, but I guess they just want to avoid people. Um, hmm. They want to avoid people like have too many people at once on campus, which I get. I mean, I understand if, if anything, it's a, it's a better precaution. So, hmm. yeah. Are yeah. you, are you going to be teaching this uh, quarter or semester? <laughs> Oh yeah, we already started. We started. Uh, we started August twenty fourth, and I have seventeen advisees. Actually, eighteen advisees. So, <laughs> and and this is the third year on the job. So you can just imagine. It's like a huge learning curve for me. Oh, wow, like, okay. I'm teaching two courses. One of which I've taught many times before. The other one that's new completely, and the syllabus is made by somebody else. I can tweak it as is. But I also, as part of that course, each of those students are my advisees for starting off their first years. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and I'm teaching fully online for the first time in my life. So it's just like lots of new things all at once. And yeah. why do you call them advisees? Is this more of a one-on-one -on -one relationship? Is that why you uh, call them that? It is partly that, yeah. So I'm actually acting as their general advisor for the first year, actually, in fact, going forward for the next couple of years while they're students. Um, and then they have their own second advisors in the major that they declare once they declare it around like their second to third year. Okay. So that's why. And it is kind of a one on one relationship. So like I'll act as their professor for this human dilemmas course. It's this new course I'm teaching. And then they I am also, though, their advisor. So like they'll also contact me in case they want to like 
they're having an issue with like registration or enrollment or if they need some advice on something. I mean, I'm kind of a mentor for them too. So oh, cool. Is, yeah. is that particular to, uh, you're at Skidmore, not Swarthmore, Skidmore, right? Skidmore. Yes, that's correct. So are I'm you guys a- more of a kind of a, is that just kind of part of the cell of your college? You guys more hands-on or is that kind of standard? Cause I don't, it's a liberal arts college. So the idea is that um, no matter what major you're in, no matter what kind of classes you're taking, you're being taught to think on kind of larger, uh, in larger patterns and on a critical level. And it will you'll gain skills in terms of critical thinking and creative thought in any class, no matter what kind of field you go into. And we have all different kinds of majors. Like we have so I'm in art history, for instance, uh, but we have people who are like, you know, uh, biochemistry and engineering, and we have math majors, and we have fine arts majors, and we have dance majors. So we've got the whole, you know, the whole gamut. So, yeah. yeah. It, and where are you? Where are you located? I'm in Olympia. It's between oh, okay. uh, Seattle and Portland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know where that is. Um, are you from there originally? I'm from kind of Northern California-ish. I, I okay. moved up to Portland in 2000 and then Olympia in 2010. Okay. All right. Very cool. Do you like living there? Uh, well, I'm just kind of out in the woods, so there's nothing not to like about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it I'm, actually, rainy, but... I'm actually out in a rural area, too. I live in Malta, New York. So it's like, I don't know if you know, if you've ever heard of like Saratoga Springs or, Maybe. you know, Albany, right? Maybe. So. Albany's in upstate New York. It's a state capital where <laughs> it's okay. like nobody knows what Albany is. It's great. <laughs> Governor Cuomo is in Albany. Uh, okay. but, but we are, so I'm like a 35 minute drive north of Albany. It's in a small town called Malta. It's, it's pretty rural. It like used to be all farmland and they've got a couple of new developments here and that's just kind of it. So. And you were there, you've been there for three years. Where were you before? I'm starting my, I'm starting my third year before I was in Boston. Cause I was finishing up my PhD at Boston university. So, and then I moved here in 2018 to start my job at Skidmore. Cool. Yeah. Were yeah. you teaching when you were doing your doctorate? Was that the kind of program? It was on and off. Um, it took me about seven years to do my master's and doctorate together. So I was teaching on and off. Like I did a summer course once and then I've taught, you know, so it was, I actually taught a survey of African art several times. So one for a summer course at BU. And then I taught it a couple of times at Boston college while I was uh, doing my PhD. And like African art, that's kind of a broad topic. It's a big continent. It's very broad. I'm so glad you said that because whenever people think of African art, they're just like masks, sculptures, Africa's a country. And I'm like, no, no. Like masks and sculptures are important. Don't get me wrong. Like that is art, but there's hmm. way more to it than that. And Africa is, it's the second largest continent. It's so diverse and you can't. I don't think you could really generalize and say like specifically what African art is in terms of like style or in terms of form or in terms of like function or ritual context or anything like that. You really cannot define it in one particular way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's a good thing. Yeah. Where was your specialty then? Just, I guess you studied mm-hmm. it broadly and then where did you uh, land down? Well, yeah, I was so I was trained as an African art specialist. So Cynthia Becker at BU was my advisor. And she's actually a specialist in um, in Moroccan art, but particularly like the textile arts, as well as the 
um, the musical arts of peoples in rural Morocco. And I'm a specialist in modern Egyptian art. So what's really interesting is we're both kind of focused on different, very different kinds of Arabic speaking regions of the continent. But we think very critically, we each think very critically in our research about what it even means to study these different regions and these more modern contemporary time periods in the context of African art and African art study. Um, so I, I mean, my own research deals a lot with painting and sculpture from the early 20th century, the interwar period, like the period between the world wars. And I'm very interested in um, how artists who went to the fine arts school in Cairo, like Egyptian artists, were always coming back to and always painting this farmer or peasant subject okay. and, and scholars have written about this subject a lot um, and they've and they've contributed some really valuable ideas about it what I wanted to push a little further and think about how we might understand this sort of peasant figure that you see in these kind of sometimes romantic sometimes not romantic sort of fine art images as a subject that's kind of in the process of becoming modern see mm, he or she okay. is not quite primitive and here she's not quite uh fully modern in the urban sense but they're sort of on their way there they're in the, there's this kind of transitiony like this transitionary or transitory if you will figure um in particular i i look at contrast between um the way that egyptian artists uh portray egyptian peasant subjects or indigenous subjects versus those figures that they tend to label as Sudanese or as African. So I'm also thinking about how artists are constructing the idea of Africa and Africans as an identity through painting and through sculpture. And in particular, a lot of my research was done on the fine art collection of an agricultural museum in Cairo. Okay. Um, it was started in 1938. And the, it, it's amazing because if they still have it open there now in Cairo, I don't know if they do, but if you go into the museum, a lot of the displays are pretty much the same as they were in the 30s. It's just really dusty now. So it's like a time capsule. Like you go into it's like it's one of my favorite places in the world. And it's like I can totally super nerd out about it. Uh, it's just an incredible place. It's like a mix between um, I don't know if you've ever been to these like industrial agricultural expositions or if you've ever heard of these things like they used to have them a lot, especially in like the late 19th, early 20th centuries all over the world. But basically it was like a permanent, a mix between a permanent version of that and a history and civilization museum and fine artworks and like displays and diagrams of like animal anatomy and like displays of what tools farmers use. And it was like five different museum buildings and a library and a cinema. It was, it's, it's just the most incredible place ever. And I don't know what's going on with it now. The last time I was there was in 2015, doing my field work in Egypt. Um, so yeah, but just, just an amazing place. I mean, it was just one of my favorite places. When you speak about the painting of the farmer and with regards to that modern era, like that slice of interwar period time, I, I was picturing like the ways in which uh, communist Russia used the image of the peasant yeah. for a political end. Was there kind of a political angle to that? And was it toward communism or or towards mm. an industrial kind of yeah. capitalist? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people have definitely asked me that question before, like, oh, I look at this painting from the Agricultural Museum, kind of reminds me of like Soviet propaganda yeah. and images of the farmer. And you're absolutely right that in a larger sense, these Egyptian artists are working in a larger international context in which 
a lot of artists and including parts of the Soviet Union and even and even I would argue the United States were very interested in the rural as a subject and as a site of negotiating things like cultural authenticity, racial authenticity. Mm. What does it mean to be Russian? What does it mean to be Egyptian? What does it mean to be American, uh, a homegrown American? Right. Um, so, so Egyptians certainly weren't alone in that. But I think the difference, though, with the Soviet artists is that um, they were trying to portray these very detailed and very almost um, very idealized romantic images of peasant life as it surrounded the political system of the Soviet. So it's very explicitly political. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and even after, like, I remember looking at examples of Soviet paintings of farmers where, like, the portrait of Stalin was also, like, hanging up by the farmhouse and they're all having a banquet outside. And yeah. sure, there's romantic images. There are images uh, like that of peasants, both in painting and sculpture in Egypt, in terms of their romanticism, but they are not... I don't think they're quite as explicitly political in the propagandist propagandistic sense. I think the important thing, though, that makes Egyptian modern art very different in dealing with the peasant subject is that most Egyptians at that time, especially, were of peasant descent. So even artists who had been living in cities for generations or were there and grew up there, it's not unusual to find artists who's like whose grandfather, you know, migrated from a little delta village like Fayum or maybe from like southern Egypt or upper Egypt in Aswan or Luxor and like went to the city around the late 19th century and like established their roots there. So Egyptians and, uh, you know, native Egyptians actually did for the most part have a lot of connections to the countryside in terms of their family lineage. And okay. Egypt, I mean, Egyptian civilization, you think of the ancient Egyptians, they built their wealth and their civilization off of farming which is the least sexy thing you could ever think of. But if you think about it, <laughs> It's sexy, but in a very patient way. In a very patient you way. You sow, you wait, yeah. you water. There it goes. Right, right. I mean, what they had is the Nile, and they had large floodplains by the Nile where they could not only grow tons of crops, they could then feed tons of livestock on there. So what do you have? You have a surplus of livestock. You have a surplus of crops. You have a surplus of agricultural produce, of wheat, beer. Those were the things that helped to build up a civilization and those are the reasons too that like temples to cult gods and goddesses were so incredibly wealthy they heavily taxed farmers most egyptians were farmers and so that's how they accumulated their wealth so i mean the the whole idea of relying on farming and also of thinking of the farmer as this uh kind of site of 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 nativism of egyptian cultural authenticity of even of racial authenticity it yeah. kind of stems from that ancient history, but it also was built up into this romantic narrative around the interwar period. And um, yeah, you see that not only in like fine art painting and sculpture, but also like literature and novels and, and cinema. And there's always these kinds of narratives, these romantic narratives of the farmer, even as some Egyptians in the city would make fun of these people for being ignorant and being backward and whatnot. There was really like kind of this dual image of, of the peasant operating at that time is this culturally authentic you know, uh, a creator and preserver of the folk arts and, and yeah. all of the things that make Egypt, Egypt. And then there's also like, oh, well, they're so backward and they're so primitive and we have to like educate them and make them better, you know? It's really difficult for me as, uh, you know, somebody, somebody whose family kind of just went west and then landed in america to really uh understand uh egypt as a concept because it's so old and and while you're describing this like 
this ancient tradition of, of farming the land that's kind of happening in my imagination in the shadow of the cosmopolitan, you know, like the mm-hmm. literal structure of like the primary Western uh, cosmopolitan, yeah. uh, you know, ideal of that temple or the, the pyramids, I mean. So right. how, what is that flux of the Egyptian, uh, you know, the identity of the Egyptian uh, with so much history and and that cosmopolitan kind of uh you know this this kind of lightning rod for the dawn of western civilization and yet even you know like them being confronted by more and more modern uh mm-hmm. implementations of of western civilization how does does the farmer in in this way of thinking kind of anchor that and kind of guide uh yeah. the negotiation between the new and the and the timeless yeah absolutely and i think in particular the peasant man not necessarily the peasant woman, but the peasant man um, acts as this figure who, in some cases, hmm. not with all artists, but with some particular artists that I've studied, he really um, has this particular ability in their imagination to straddle that sort of divide, if you will, between the native, the authentic, the Egyptian, the indigenous, and this like the sort of modern and the Western, right? Um, so what's really interesting here is that, and, and I'll actually, I'll describe an example for you. And unfortunately, I, I don't think I can like share an image right now. I'm not I sure can how put the screen it share. Um, I could, yeah, I could share an image Just later on. after. Yeah. Sure. Um, there are paintings of peasant men that were made almost life-size at the Agricultural Museum. And they sat in one of the main halls. So people would walk into this incredible palatial building you'd have this three-dimensional model of the nile river just shooting right down the middle of the hall and then it leads your eye to these four vertically oriented skinny narrow life-size paintings of these standing peasant men and they're each supposed to represent a different kind of corner of egypt right you can tell by their different kinds of clothing you can tell by their skin tones you can tell by like the kind of the sort of realism of the paintings in other words they're meant to look a little bit like a sort of realistic portrait of a person. So what's interesting is the men are recognizable in a sense as individual people, but they're anonymous, right? There are these anonymous types. When some people look at them, they think, oh, just like Soviet painting. But if you look very closely at these paintings, the backgrounds for these figures are this kind of plain sort of tan earth background. You can't really tell where they are. It's very kind of nondescript. And they each have some variation of that background. So they kind of all tend to, they all, it's almost as if they occupy the same type of abstracted national realm too, which to me then signals, oh, wow, okay. So they're kind of, these four different kinds of men are occupying the same national realm. So they're sort of being transported by this artist. His name was Ali Al-Dib. He, was, he worked for the museum a lot, actually. He transported these figures that are traditionally thought of as sort of like a little backward, a little primitive into these slightly like kind of becoming modern figures because they're then they're kind of becoming compatriots, right? They're sort of occupying the same abstracted national realm. They may have a sort of similar cause. They're sort of uh, separate, but equal, right? Um, They're all the same size. And so um, there's these interesting kind of, there's a, and they're also two, Aldib adapted these portraits and these figures from choosing from different photographic, ethnographic photographs that were displayed throughout the museum. So it'd be like a panel of photographs that says like Alexandria, you know, people fishing. And he would draw from different components of different people who were photographed for these kind of almost like 
they almost look like postcards or ethnographic pictures and he'd make a new figure or he would like take the image of one man and he'd stay true to his form and his face but then he'd uh, you know alter his outfit a little bit so the fact that these are real people that he sort of adapted paintings from but then made them into something sort of new and fit them into these new kinds of narratives about the national realm if you will it kind of helps these figures that straddle that divide between being indigenous, being attached to the land, but also being modern in the sense that they are citizens of a country, right? Okay. Does that yeah. does that make sense at Yeah. All? You made a distinction between the peasant man, the peasant woman. Mm. Could you extrapolate yeah. on that? Why, why is the peasant man the bridge and not so much? The, the so the peasant man, I think, I think he becomes a bridge... And I'll, I'll talk about what the peasant woman symbolizes, but the peasant man really acts as a bridge, and particularly in the case of Adib's four paintings at the museum, because um, he, so first of all, his, his particular practices of the arts, whether that's dance arts or music, whether that's the kind of clothes that he creates, and you see a little these cheesy life-size mannequins with dioramas of like peasant men doing this in the museum. So you literally like his Zeldib's paintings are literally envisioning these characters like in painting form, like wearing whatever it is they tend to make. Those types of folk arts, whether it's costume, uh, stick dances, whatever it is. Those are the things that are celebrated both in the realm of painting and at the museum and in popular culture as the most authentic expressions of Egyptian folk arts. Okay. It's not the things women do. Women, you know, women embroider and they sew and they knit and they create pottery and ceramics and they and they and they have their own forms of music and dance those kinds of um female practices don't get the same kind of attention and the same kind of valor that peasant men's folk practices do and i think that's very significant so that's one difference between the way that peasant men and peasant women were envisioned but what's really interesting is that you actually see peasant women much more often represented in the fine art painting and sculpture and in fact one of the most famous Modern Egyptian artworks is a sculpture by Mahmoud Mukhtar called Egyptian Awakening. And it's this massive 30 plus foot tall granite sculpture of a peasant woman. And she's kind of partly unveiling, like she's wearing her kind of modern, like her rather her contemporary dress, like a tunic and a long veil. She's unveiling, she's standing beside this fair, this uh, sphinx and the sphinx is kind of rising up on his, on his four feet. So, um, but she's very abstracted and she she kind of she's an allegory. She's kind of like the Statue of Liberty in a way, in the sense that not to say that that it's derivative of the Statue of Liberty, but rather to say that whenever you often see sculptures of female figures, especially from like the 19th through the early 20th centuries, they're always representations of abstract ideas, such as like Egypt, Egypt as uh, being personified as a woman, right? Uh, you even see like in old political cartoons from the US, you see America being personified as a woman or she's envisioned as a Statue of Liberty. That's not unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's, she acts more as an allegory. She's not a recognizable figure. She's not okay. named. Uh, she's not a political figure. So um, that's something you see often. And then, you know, other kinds of 
images or, or representations you might see of peasant women very often in the fine arts are um, just kind of romantic images of peasant women as very beautiful and as representing the kind of wholesome, uh, graceful femininity of not only of Egyptian women, but of the Egyptian land. So okay. oftentimes women's bodies and faces and their beauty are often likened to the topography, literally the beauty of the Nile River or the oases or, you know, the lush banks of the Nile. I mean, that's a, that's a very hmm. common trope that you see in yeah. the fine arts. There's uh, interest, just analyzing your language, you repeatedly brought up the term authenticity when speaking about the mm-hmm. representational force of the male but that there's more of an idealism with regards to the female. Right? Yeah. So, the, but that's, so this is interesting. Uh, is it, do you go by Ben or Benjamin, by the way? I prefer Benjamin. Okay. Um, so but this is interesting, Benjamin, because on the one hand, many art historians who analyze modern Egyptian art, and there's a, there's a small body of, of scholarship on this, on this, uh, this kind of work. Um, especially a lot of Arabic language art historians have a tendency to argue that, well, you know, these artists were portraying peasant women so often because they saw them as very authentic. They saw them as a representation of unauthentic Egypt and so on and so forth. And to an extent, it's true, right? Uh, if you go back and look at some of the, the letters and correspondence that artists were writing in the 1920s and 1930s to each other, to patrons of the arts, and those included members of the royal family and the government at the time, they did talk a lot about the peasant woman as an authentic figure. Um, but I think, I, think what, I think what makes them different if I can articulate this properly, I think what makes the authenticity of the peasant woman different in the arts is that her authenticity is often a representation of like the authentic beauty of the landscape, not Hmm. so much a representation of like authentic modern Egyptian culture. And if anything, um, her representation oftentimes will incorporate, like in Mahmoud Mukhtar's case with that large granite sculpture, um, it, sits, it actually still sits in Cairo. Uh, this kind of styles that he used evoke or mimic the sort of monumentality and the rigid forms of ancient Egyptian uh, royal portrait sculpture. If you look at like the fronts of temples from ancient Egypt, you have these massive, you know, figures, representations of pharaohs on there. He used the same kinds of styles and he used granite to carve them. And so the kind of um, authenticity that these female figures represent is a sort of a timelessness and a uh, something that connects contemporary Egyptians to their ancient ancestors. Okay. Um, when it comes to peasant men figures, even though they, they do appear less often in painting and sculpture, but their authenticity is enacted more, uh, less through kind of romanticism and ideas of physical beauty, but more through the kinds of things that they do, the practices yeah. that they engage in. And that includes like the folk arts, I think, are a prime example that I've mentioned before. Does that help to kind of clarify yeah. Is there like a history of the concept of authenticity that sounds like a very modern, even framework? 
Like yeah. you would have to compare it to some sort of fakery, which doesn't come around until <laughs> kind of later on in, in the arts, right? Right. right. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, the concept of authenticity, especially the authenticity of the subject you're painting or the person or thing that appears okay. in, in a work, the subject of that, I mean, the authenticity of that has been debated not just in parts of Europe, but also in Egypt for at least since the late 19th century. Um, and in fact, uh, it's it's such an important concept, yeah. especially for I think it's I think it's gained a new life, though, in the past, say, 40 to 50 years in Egypt in terms of art criticism and art history. So if you look back at these really like canonical art historical texts from Egypt that are written in Arabic by, you know, uh, famous historians like Bedreddin Abouhezi or um, or even like more contemporary ones like Ismet Dawastashi or Izzeddin Naguib, um, they, they have a tendency to um, project a certain idea about authenticity onto not only the history of the fine arts and the subjects portrayed, but onto the artists themselves. So they'll say like, yeah, this artist Mahmoud Said was just so authentic and, you know, um, he really just wanted to create an Egyptian national art. But in fact, there are other scholars that have found that ah, that's not necessarily true. This person comes from an aristocratic background. He was very different than other artists. And he really was more tied to kind of the white foreign born elite that were living in Alexandria and Cairo. So uh, I, I, I hope I didn't go off on a tangent there. But this is all just to say that the narrative of authenticity or what's in Arabic called al-asala, like it's it's like it means roots, but it also is a reference to authenticity. Uh, this is a, a concept that yes, it was important to people who were uh, working in the nineteenth, the early twentieth century, and were maybe the contemporaries of these artists or were the artists themselves. But it's gained a new life and has become, I think, even kind of inflated in the more contemporary literature that reflects on the importance of the fine arts in Egypt. If that makes any so, sense? Yeah. What is the the history and the end of art history then from your perspective and and where do you base it in within the context of egypt is there like a particular strain of art history that that owes to egyptian mm. roots and how do you assemble your methodology um and what is the purpose goodness i mean i i think that i think that all of the things that have made what egyptian modern art was and is today are so numerous. I mean, a, a lot of times, I, I've, if I'm understanding your question correctly, Benjamin, you mean like, where does the kind of history of art start in Egypt? Is that kind of what you're asking? Well, or... I'm speaking more about methodologically, like just as a humanities mm -hmm. professor and in the, con yeah. uh, in the context of the humanities, like what is art history and what's the history in the end of it? Like, I just want to kind of understand you know, yeah. your methodology and, and your telos, sure. like what are you sure. trying to accomplish yeah. here? So, so I'll tell you first that my methodology as an art historian is um, what we tend to call a socio-historical approach. And I mix different kinds of methodologies. So I mix, I'll, I'll tell you what each of those are, but I mix a socio-historical approach with um, a visual culture lens on, uh, on art. And um, sometimes I incorporate like a lot of like feminist analysis or gender studies analysis, as well as like like racial studies, because one, I'm trained as an Africanist. And two, I'm, I'm really actually very interested in how Egyptians are literally like reforming and recreating this idea of an African race or a, a black race, quote unquote, 
uh, as opposed to an Egyptian race, which is equally as fabricated. And they're they're referring yeah. to a colonial history in the Sudan to create that sort of narrative. So I'm also okay. incorporating a methodology that really thinks very critically about constructions of race in the fine arts and in the world of the arts. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a of, lot of different things. <laughs> yeah, race, it, just because we're working in a visual medium, race is a visual representation of uh, of a person. It's something you see. It's very it's a very visually rooted thing. So I can see how art really, really has the power to sculpt what a race is or what a nationality is. The way that you represent it is where we converge our understanding of what it is. Right, so. right. I mean, I would even say, yeah, and you're right, you're absolutely right, that, that any kind of visual culture, which it could be anything from oil painting to photography to sketches and cartoons put into a magazine, all of these different things kind of form a kaleidoscope together of what what we can tell literate Egyptians were thinking when they were thinking about what it means to be Egyptian versus what it means to be African, uh, what mm-hmm. it means to be a woman versus a man, what it means to be cultured versus uncultured, what it means to be wealthy and not wealthy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so this is not to say that these things are not rooted in any kind of tangible reality. That's not to say that at all. But but the, the idea of a discourse is is very important here, and the fine arts do play a particularly important role in that. But I would say that racial identity is not just understood visually through, say, like phenotype, or in other words, like skin color or facial features, but it's also understood visually in terms of other kinds of signs or symbols, right? Like if, for instance, an artist wanted to, and I've seen this before, if an artist uh, wants to portray someone as African rather than as someone from Northern Sudan, because in the Arabic speaking imagination, those are two very different things, Uh, there would be a lot of visual references to the religious practices or religious identities of those figures. So um, if somebody is dressed in, say, a full white tunic and is wearing like a white turban or something, okay, they're identified as being somebody from that comes from southern Egypt or northern Sudan. But but they are slightly higher status than Africans because they are identified as Muslim. Right. But as soon as you as soon as somebody is identified with certain visual markers, especially markers of clothing that are identified as non-Muslim or as pagan, that automatically will designate somebody as African. And also, by extension, in this context, as being like a more primitive, more barbaric, you know, uh, quote unquote, savage. I mean, you know, that, that kind of those kinds of discourses uh, operated sort of in a symbiosis between the visual arts and photography and and literature like there is literally an entire body of social sciences and ethnography written in arabic by egyptians uh sometimes they would incorporate the theories and methodologies of like british anthropologists and ethnographers and sometimes they would you know really engage with other types of discourses there and they would create these sort of uh um sort of stories and hierarchies about like Mm -hmm. who was egyptian and who's not and they would you know (laughs) so there there's a whole like Literally, the history of the social sciences actually factors a lot into the work that I do analyzing artworks, especially for an agricultural museum where science and art and the humanities all kind of muddle into one in this space. So it's Hmm. very important to understand the history of the social sciences and the sciences in particular when you're considering something like this. 
Is there a pre-colonial concept of race in Egypt, or was that post-colonial, or and was it more uh, rooted in uh, religion? Say. Yeah. Um, well, so I guess then that also def- depends on how you define colonial, right? Because yeah. Egypt was, especially Egypt, was conquered by so many different civilizations and people for thousands of years before the British ever came into the picture yeah. in the 1880s, right? And why is that? Um, there, there, there's a very important geo- geographical reason for that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Egypt is literally the crossroads between Africa and Asia, and it's on the Mediterranean. I mean, it's just strategically such an important part of the old, of what people call the old world. So there is absolutely a geographical reason for that. Um so, I mean, you could say, so there are a lot of um, medieval period Arabic geographies uh, written by, you know, written by Arabic speaking geographers that were maybe Egyptian or were Moroccan or were from different parts of North Africa. And they would write about the different peoples that they encountered. And sometimes they would describe um, different races of people, sometimes with very derogatory language. So, a race and and even by extension racism um, is something that existed before the whole this whole idea of European colonization came about around the modern period or around the mid to late nineteenth century. So I, I I think I think that British colonialism in in Egypt and in the Nile Valley did have a huge impact on people there and how they conceived race. But I, there were so many other systems and ideologies of race operating in that part of Africa well before Europeans ever came into the picture. And Hmm. um, not to mention the fact, too, that you had systems of slavery that were operating not only all along the Nile and Northeast Africa and East Africa, but all along, you know, the Sahel and parts of West Africa. I mean, slavery was you know, a system of trade and a system of the migration of humans for thousands of years in Africa. Um, So that alone, too, that system of slavery was uh, racially inflected in the sense that um, in in, in, where where things like phenotype or physical features and and religious categories tended to intersect or not. Right. So so, for instance, in the medieval period of, say, somebody in the Nile Valley had features that we today in the U.S. would identify as black right? Like, let's say like a broader nose or very, very dark skin or tightly curled hair, just as an example. But that person in that context may have been Muslim and may have therefore not at all identified as black and African and therefore was immune from slave status, right? Hmm. Uh, So this is, so, so when we think about constructions of race in modern Egyptian art, okay, yes, these artists are working in the 20s and 30s. They're working at a time where there are these many layers of like the sort of vestiges of medieval ideas of race uh, versus Muhammad Ali in the 19th century or the early 1800s sending expeditions up the Nile, like to parts of Uganda and stuff like that to um, find out more about the source of the Nile and get slaves for his army and stuff like that. You have so many layers of conquest, of interaction, of discourses, of uh, uh, religious categories and how they intersect or or literally form racial categories that to say if there's one source for how people, one source for the ideas of how people defined race in the 1920s and 30s, it's just impossible to do that because there's too many overlapping histories of, 
of things like racial categories, religion, slavery, uh, things like that, that, that just, they, they're all muddled up together in a place like Egypt. And um, there are some really interesting, like, if you ever want to learn more about that, um, I refer, as associate, taking a socio-historical approach, I do read the works of art historians, and I do refer to them a lot in my research. I put my work in conversation with theirs, but I also refer a lot to historians. Like, say, Eve Trout Powell has done really groundbreaking historical research on Egyptian nationalism that arose around the turn of the century and the ways in which they defined their relationship with what they called the Sudan in order to try to justify reclaiming the Sudan as a colony yeah. before the terrible British came came in and like took it away from them. Um, she's, she's really instrumental in helping us understand that history. Um, and there are also other historians too, like Beth Barron um, and Timothy Mitchell that have really helped us to understand um, how modernity arose in Egypt, but also arose in Egypt, um, not just as like a Western phenomenon, but actually as something that kind of became its own distinctive phenomenon uh, unto itself around the What are the, the trappings of modernism? Uh, on a larger level? I guess in the context of Egypt, or could you just define that so we can understand, mm. like, what is it to be modern? Yeah, that's a, that's a really Aside great from question. being 150 years older, younger. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah I mean, we've talked a lot about dates, right? Uh, that's an excellent question, and I probably cannot give you one definite answer. But one thing I've noticed is that people at that time defined modernity as... Um, having some sense of belonging to a national community of some kind is the, one of the most distinctive elements of modernity is and uh, national of, identity as opposed to what ethnic, as opposed racial, to religious. as opposed to say like if if you are a farmer living in a village which most egyptians were at that time your sense of identity if if you want to call it that was more like your ties to your family and your extended family and your ties to the village as a certain social and it's and to an extent a political system it was not to the idea of being egyptian in the national sense okay so and it's something i think that today as americans we kind of take for granted the idea of being tied to a national community like we don't think of it that way consciously but we take for granted that those kinds of ideas of like what it means to be american that, that just sort of is, it's just there. It's like in the air we breathe. But for a lot of Egyptians living in the very early 20th century, especially those living outside the city, that wasn't really a concept for them. It was more like their ties to family and kinship and extended family and maybe the mayor or the omda of a village. Like that was the most, okay. those were the most important relationships in terms of get, having the sense of community and understanding who they were as individuals, right? And this is where the power of the image comes in and allows mm -hmm. people to start conceptualizing something broader than just the, their immediate history. Yeah. And yeah, you were absolutely right. And in fact, um, there are some historians that talk a lot about how the rise of the printed, the rise of, first of, the, first of all, the printing press, but yeah. by, by extension, newspapers, and then illustrated newspapers that had cartoons and Egypt has a rich history of just political cartoons on their own uh, early on in that region. But then the image of the photograph and the photographs start coming in to newspapers. And for the first time, literate Egyptians who were reading these magazines and newspapers, uh, living in cities, never having gone to the countryside, 
you know, they're like looking at these photographs in like the, in the late 1910s, 20s, 1930s, and they're like, oh, so that's a Saidi or somebody from Upper Egypt there. And he's like, you know, trying to to water his plants or do his farm or, oh, look, that's, you know, the, you know, King Farouk or King Fouad who's there is like a member of the royal family and he's doing this. And all these photographs are literally situated and edited onto the same pages. So you flip through the pages and you see one after the other. You start to literally rewire people's brains into yes. thinking about, as you were insinuating, Benjamin, to thinking about themselves as part of a larger community that they may not see and may not access physically or immediately. I mean, that's yeah. that's very profound. And you're absolutely right about that. And in fact, analyzing those types of photographs and those types of formats and the idea of a national community from that is it plays such a big role in the kind of work I do analyzing images of peasant men and masculinity in particular. Okay. Because when you look at these old newspapers, you hardly see images of women. Usually it's just when you see photographs of the Egyptian national community as it's implicitly drawn out, it's a national community hmm. of men. It is a masculine face. And that's actually very important. I don't think, I think as scholars, we've made the mistake in the past and even still to today to thinking of, uh, of images of men as being degendered or being like not really gendered. But I think that, uh, I think that there's actually a lot of intentionally gendered language underneath all these images of men. And in fact, masculinity and particular modern masculinities mm. identified in Egypt was a pathway to ideas like citizenship. It was a pathway to hmm. trying to construct a national community. It was not like a sort of degendered standard, like not at all. Masculinity was actually seen as having tremendous currency for these kinds of ideas about citizenship in particular, because one of the hallmarks of modernity is first of all, the focus on the individual. And then second mm -hmm. of all, the individual has like a free will or the individual voice. has yeah. preferences. The individual has a, um, a will to maybe help, shape and change others right in the sense of a national community and that's a big hallmark of the idea of modernity in particular being a modern person so masculinity and manhood sits at the at the core hmm. of uh, of constructing a certain sort of modernity um for people and for a national community in egypt at the time i can see how it would be very tempting to describe the lack of representation of the female as uh, an outgrowth of some sort of oppressive uh, stance over the female or a dominant stance or just neglect of the female. But I, I wonder if that's if there's room to explore that positively as though the, the female was considered private or personal or, mm. or something that that wasn't uh, wasn't the currency of mm -hmm. uh, of the marketplace it was something that was in a yeah. different domain do you have any uh considerations on that like yeah yeah a positive and I a negative understanding of that absolutely i've thought about that before because i think it would be really nice to find something positive out of that right and i think you know men and women don't necessarily have to like be the same or look the same in order to both be valuable in their own right so i think that that's an interesting question to start from i think the big question i'm thinking of is if, in fact, let's let's just say hypothetically, we could read the lack of representation of women in these more kind of 
images of the national community read that as as positive and as maybe perhaps interpreting it as um or maybe it's a, maybe they're trying to protect women more in terms of uh, being part of a private realm or being kind of the realm of maybe the family or something that's not like sort of out in the open and that could be a good thing in its own right but that runs in the face of the fact that one peasant women were portrayed far more often in the fine arts than peasant okay. men so they're far more visible and two, they always appear as these allegorical figures. Yeah, and allegorical yeah. figures, by their own right, are yeah, highly symbolic. They're highly symbolic, which means that also people can take the female form and inscribe any kind of meaning they want on it. They can literally, I mean, depending on like changing contexts like uh, um, changes in the workforce or changes in the migration of rural people into the city, you see images of women as these abstract ideas shifting and changing because it literally acts as a barometer for uh, popular ideas at the time. So we're not, we're not protecting women in the private realm at all, if that's the case. If anything, we're doing the complete opposite. We're literally using women as a kind of their bodies are a free for all site for inscribing all these conflicting meanings into them. And, and, and if anything, I, I wouldn't push it this far, but I would even, you could say, you could go so far as to say that images of women and representations of women are in fact, uh, a sort of violation of that privacy. If anything, does that, if mm -hmm. the, just the fact mm -hmm. that they're so visible and they're so ubiquitous, but they don't come to represent, not only individual recognizable women, like say yeah. singers, political figures, whatever, but the fact that they are so, um, they're so malleable as like rep personifications of abstract ideas, that indicates to me uh, uh, what we might be able to call a kind of a kind of oppressive dynamic okay. that's going on there when you compare it to men. I don't know if that makes any sense, and maybe that what? doesn't fully answer your question, but that's something I think about when you when you touched on it. Okay. What what's the trajectory then of female empowerment within Egypt over the last uh, modern period? Is it <laughs> a rather oppressive, repressive? Or... Uh, I well. I, has ha, have women come into their own yet or, or are they still pretty much held back i guess you can compare it to yeah. in the united states or yeah yeah uh so wow um hmm. i would say so i'll start off and say that compared to like the 1920s or 30s i would say women in egypt have certainly come a long way in terms of like now they have job options right like before okay. in the 20s and 30s i mean you you couldn't do anything other than maybe become a wife and mother or a prostitute. I mean, those were literally your oh, wow. options. Okay. I mean, it was not. And, and of course, if you were a peasant woman, you worked on the farm alongside your husband and your children. And sometimes when you'd have to go away, you are the one who runs the farm. So there are these kind of systems in which women can find those small pathways of power within a larger patriarchal system. But your options overall as a woman were extremely limited. And that's not to mention the fact, too, that like ideas of honor and chastity are so powerful in Egypt, okay. especially at that time. And the woman in the family is literally the embodiment of the family's honor, right? Which is then what leads you to kind of think about issues like honor killings. I mean, honor killings have, they've, they've gone on in Egypt for a very long time. Uh, and that's, it's because 
in a patriarchal society, this kind of part patriarchal society, women's bodies are literally, women are supposed to be the vessels for the family's honor. And so if they do anything, anything at all that, uh, that could be read as like being licentious or promiscuous in any capacity, and that bar was set pretty low. So there's very, a lot that women could do to kind of like violate those terms. Um, you know, the, the uncle or the brother or even possibly the father technically had the right to kill you. I mean, this is particularly in the villages. I want to make that clear. This kind okay. of thing didn't happen very much in the cities in those days. But but the idea of honor, Eid, as it's called in Arabic, is uh, is very distinct. And Eid is very different from the concept of honor attributed to men, which is sharaf. And sharaf is... Uh, shut off is a kind of honor that one bestows upon themselves through a series of actions. And it's something that can be taken away, but not because somebody uh, did something to you or somebody raped you or somebody had sex with you. No, shut off is something a man takes on that um, it's, it's kind of like you sort of wear it like a cloak and it gives you a lot of respect in the wider community. But it's, it's and it kinda... gives you a lot of political power, too. It's tied to some form of meritocracy, or it's the outgrowth yes. of marriage. Yeah, shut off okay. is is tied to a certain form of meritocracy and a certain form of morality that is considered upstanding for a good man, right? So, so it's not to say that men and women, you know, women only were expected to be moral and men were not. It's not it's not quite that simple. But there were different gendered concepts of honor that were operating at that time. Now, if we want to fast forward and think about women in Egypt now, okay, yeah, they have a lot more options in terms of jobs. Yes, like a far larger proportion of them are getting formal educations in school. I mean, education alone is such an excellent pathway to ha exercising some sort of freedom and rights, right? And, and personal mm -hmm. autonomy and awareness of the world, making good decisions for yourself and your loved ones. I mean, education is such a prime pathway for that. But... Um, I think that, uh, I, I mean, Egypt is now has a reputation for being one of the worst countries in the world for women. And, really? and that's not, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, I'm mm. not, I wasn't born there. I wasn't raised there, but I lived there for a year and, yeah. uh, I've talked to other women, women in my family or women that I know in Cairo who talk about their experiences. And I've read statistics too. So beyond the anecdotal, I've also, you know, knowing statistics, numbers, I mean, women really, they just don't fare well. Um, things like sexual violence and harassment are, are a huge problem in Egypt today. Um, Cairo in particular, like Cairo is like infamous in the Middle East for street harassment. That's just like one prime example. The street harassment's terrible there. It's partly because everyone's really anonymous. It's a big, big city with like 20 million people. So no one's going to hold you accountable, right? If you're in a village, obviously no one's going to just go and like cat call a woman who's walking down the street because he probably knows that woman's uncle and the uncle's going to come and like beat him up. But like <laughs> in a big city like Cairo, like men are just, they're not held accountable for those things, okay. right? Because that yeah. system of honor operates differently in a city than it does in the village. But, but women just, they don't fare well. Their, their job opportunities are still limited because people do often judge them by, by their appearance. Um, it's very easy for women to get um, judged and attacked for any kind of, suspected sexual activity they might engage in, especially before marriage. Uh, uh, people still very much think that a woman's role in life is to just get married and have kids, and that's it. 
So even if you're like, you want to raise your family status as a young woman and go like get a PhD in biochemistry or physics or something, which is something you see often with, with more educated Egyptians there, she'll graduate and get her PhD, but then she'll just go get married and have kids and she'll just stay at home because, because, uh, her getting a PhD was just to elevate the reputation of the family. It was not for the purpose of being a part of the workforce. Okay. And contributing ideas to things like science and scientific development or anything like that. So I would I would say, um, you know, I hate there are so many things that I love about Egypt and Egyptian culture and stuff. But one of the things I really don't like is it's the persistence and the the force and the strength of, of patriarchy there even today. OK. So, OK. Yeah. Yeah. How does uh, one I guess how do you negotiate what a woman is when we're looking at a culture such as Egypt where the distinction between man and woman is vast. It's very vast and it's very uh, kind of one directional and who gets the short end of that stick. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then thinking in terms of America where everybody's basically free and there's vestiges of older attitudes and stuff like that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's the, there's rhetoric about smashing the patriarchy, but when, when you try to apply that to America, you're like, well, what what are we really talking about anymore? How do we define uh, Mm -hmm. the, the, the woman outside of the oppressive regime? Or is there like a negotiation, a renegotiation of, of that that, that you've uh, found interesting at all? Yeah, I mean, my God, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't have, it's so hard for me to fully and exactly define what a woman is outside of a patriarchal context because, well, you know, I live in it and you live in it and everybody does. And all cultures around the world are patriarchal. Some people try to argue the contrary, but I, I actually, for the most part, I think we we do live in something called an ultra patriarchy. And there's, gosh, there's, uh, ultra, I don't know if you're ultra, like, ultra like patriarchy. Mega? Yeah, ultra <laughs> in the sense of all encompassing in terms okay. of all cultures or all places. But I'm not the one who came up with that term. There's actually this there's this scholar and this uh, analyst, and I'm for, gosh, I'm forgetting her name now. I don't know if you know her. Uh, she came up with this term ultra patriarchy, and she writes very critically about it. I've seen an interview with her. I haven't read her work in depth. Uh, I think her concept is very profound, though. It's very hard for me to conceive of, and I apologize that I don't remember her name. If I if I remember it again, I'll I'll share it with you and share that along with maybe like an image of an artwork or something. But. Um, I think that there should be a way to define women and men outside of a patriarchy. I think that I think that um, I don't want to get too much into it for a variety of different kind of like political and work reasons, but mm-hmm. I do think that there should be something uh, um, different and distinctive in a positive way about womanhood versus manhood that we should respect and honor a lot, right? What that exactly is and what it should entail, I don't know exactly, but I think, I mean, I think that motherhood can be an important way of defining women just because, because you know, most female-born women, like, they, they have the ability to give birth, and that, that alone, that, that key to life, literally having that life force, that I, hmm. ability to give birth, to bring another human being into the world, right? that's a big deal. And I think that that, that to me really comes out. And I think um, there should be ways to kind of honor and respect that 
without making women, for instance, feel obligated to only have children and then that's their most important contribution to their to their community or to their society. I think there's ways to honor and respect that and cherish it while also not making women feel like, well, in order to do well at this thing, you have to take away all of these other things. Like, I, I don't necessarily yeah, yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, and I also think too, like there could be like new ways to think about like, like men and what, it, what manhood is too in a, in a, I don't know, a post patriarchy or a non patriarchal <laughs> society, if you want to or call low, it that. Low patriarchy, low I guess we pa- can. <laughs> patriarchy light. I don't know. I mean, I mean, however you want to, you want to think of it. Huh. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think we, there should be ways to like kind of honor those differences. Actually, have you read the work of Lucy Rigure? She's a French philosopher. Um, a little she was bit. Writing, she's writing more, I think, in like the 70s, I want to say. Yeah, um, yeah. Probably about 40 to 50 years old. I remember reading her book, Je Tu Nu. Uh, that's in French. Uh, so I don't know if you want me to spell it for you. but <laughs> it's, it's she. So if you look it up, it's it's uh, they have English translated versions of it. And I read it for a women's studies class, a theory and women's studies class back when in undergrad, like back a million years ago. And it was actually a really cool book because it talks about that very thing that she's coming, trying to come up. Irigaray was trying to come up with a framework for honoring and understanding mm. women as a different category from men, but fit, fitting into a feminist praxis and a feminist philosophy. So she was actually, she's a philosopher. Um, that's her training. And uh, it's very nuanced. And I think when I first read it as an undergrad, I felt very uncomfortable with it because it really like went in the face of like any, everything I thought I understood about what feminism should be, what our society should look like, like how do you fight the patriarchy? Uh, she really she really contrasted with a lot of other authors. But I think looking back now, I really appreciate what she's trying to do. And hmm. I think I think it's very profound. Uh, very profound ideas in her book. So if you're ever interested in kind of reading up about that, like I'd highly recommend that book. I've intersected with her very poetic, but whenever I've encountered her writing or being mm-hmm. used, it's it's heavily uh, poetic and uh, conceptual. Yeah. So, yeah, so. yeah. And that's not unusual for a French philosopher. I find the French philosophers yeah. oftentimes yeah. they tend to use a lot of very poetic and very kind of poetically abstract language. Um, but I, re- I recall that book in particular being fairly easy to understand in part because parts of the chapters were also structured as interviews. So Irigiri would be in an interview with somebody else and they'd be just talking about a concept like yeah. gametes and an embryo and then like the woman's body and what it does yeah. and how can we use that to understand what women are on the larger philosophical level. And it, but it was very, very nuanced and very rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is uh, what I've been studying just in my trajectory of, of being a content creator has been kind of roughly the infiltration of uh, heavy handed activism into the humanities and, and just studying the repercussions of that. And I understand I'm going to try to phrase this as a question. How do you balance scholarship with uh, how do you balance understanding the world as it is with uh, facilitating a, a better understanding or changing the way the world is? And how do you keep yourself responsible in that uh, negotiation? What was the first point that you were comparing with the second? I'm sorry. I just want to make sure I understand. You don't have to rephrase it, but just repeat it just so that I can follow along. Yeah, well, I, I, I can't 
repeat myself. I'm gonna so I'm gonna rephrase. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was I was speaking with your sister yesterday, and we we're kind of yeah. like uh, jamming about this, and uh, she said that she shares with you some extracts from other parts of the academy, and and mm. you can you can see where scholarship is failing, or you can see what makes a bad scholar. And what yeah. I've been seeing is that activism kind of ruins scholarship, right? In, in a certain way, okay. the, the desire to change the world is getting in the way of the desire to understand the world. So I, I'm wondering, do you, do you, do you, how do you keep your, what makes a good scholar? How do you describe this thing, especially in the humanities, when you are basically, every time you touch something, you're leaving your marks on it. You are, you're, you're resurrecting and you're getting messy right along with your material. You're, you're telling a story yeah. every time. Um, yes. Yes. So absolutely. how do you, how do you tell what, what's good scholarship? Yeah. Uh, so, so first we need to tackle what we mean by changing things. Like if, yeah. cause you gave an example of like when everything's politically motivated and you're trying to change things, it might ruin scholarship. So if by changing things, you mean, hmm. uh, trying to say that there are multiple truths and that the truth, the truths only rely or lie in the individual and that there are no, there's no such thing as an objective truth with a capital yeah. T. I can, I can see where the spirit of that idea came from when it first emerged. Like the idea that, oh, you can tell multiple stories about one particular thing, depending on the questions you ask of it, which in fact, like when you, when you think about if you want to think about narrative on a very wide sense in the humanities, um, the story, and I tell my students this, I'm like, the story that you tell about an artwork and the story an artwork tells you, in a sense, can depend on the questions you ask of it. And in fact, that itself is actually a, not only a hallmark of humanistic inquiry, it's actually a benefit of humanistic inquiry. Because then you can start using objective and empirical data to help you construct a narrative about something like art. Now, there is always inevitably, in the case of art history, some subjective interpretation. You have to interpret an artwork. Okay, you could talk about, oh, well, it's red. Okay, it's round and shiny. And, you know, oh, we know that it was originally seen in this kind of space or whatever it may be. I'm just kind of giving an abstract example. But then you got to interpret it, right? So there's always going to be a level of objective and subjective data that's coming into something like art history or any kind of other humanistic inquiry. Okay. Now, um, I think that that's actually good. And I think it can be a benefit. I think where things go wrong is when you shirk attempts to find objective or empirical data and you only replace it with the subjective and interpretive. That's where things go awry. Okay. Um, you cannot, and I've seen people do this actually with African art very often where they will, uh, look at a mask or look at something like that. And they'll be like, well, you know, I think that this, you know, expresses the kind of um, essential beauty that all people of this racial category have. And da, 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 da. I'm like, that mask was not made for that purpose at all. And it actually, these features of it are meant to represent these things. And we know that from okay. empirical evidence, empirical evidence, including like interviews with people who use the masks, uh, data uh, tracing the stylistic and formal developments of these masks over the course of 50 years, for instance. Like, so you have to mix the objective with the subjective. You have to substantiate 
and acknowledge your subjective interpretations of something based off of empirical data as an art historian. And any decent art historian is going to understand that. That is not flagrant or ridiculous to say something like that. There are, unfortunately, and, and I've seen just a few examples of this um, and in passing, there are like some examples of folks who I think just they are not using uh, data collection. They're not using careful analysis to make very grandstanding claims about a particular topic at hand. And thankfully, I think these people are in the minority. Uh, most scholars that I know in the humanities are, when they do their research, they really are trying to get to the root of something. They really are trying to find a truth there. Um, and I can speak for myself that I really, I think all the time about, I mean, really what we're dealing with, Benjamin, is epistemology or the very yeah. science and study and construction of knowledge, right? Um, and and uh, I, epistemology sits at the heart of my art historical research, thinking very critically about how is an artwork in its creation uh, part of a larger sort of web or pattern of epistemology in a given cultural context in a certain time period. Um, and whenever you're dealing with like the formation of knowledge in any particular place or time, you're going to have to use both uh, empirical data and some level of subjective interpretation that is substantiated, however, by things like studies of the culture, looking at, you could look at like print culture and popular culture. You could look at nationalist treatises written at the time. You could look at um, uh, uh, different government documents that were, you know, uh, accrued at the time. You're using all different kinds of empirical data to substantiate a rich and nuanced and clear sort of subjective interpretation. Um, so what I, I guess what I'm trying to say, Benjamin, and I hope I'm not uh, rambling too much, is that the objective and the subjective are not always inherently opposed. In good scholarship, they have a symbiosis. Yeah. They're, they're integrated. They are integrated, absolutely. And they have a very symbiotic relationship with each other. And what's yeah. the purpose of art history? The purpose of art history is to help us understand human history and to help us understand the human experience, if you will, on a larger level, through the things that people make. It doesn't have to necessarily be oil painting or sculpture, what we tend to define as art with a capital A. Art historians, will you could, you could analyze the desk that this is sitting on, you could analyze yeah. the chair, you could analyze things like photographs that were printed in a popular magazine. Actually, art historians analyze all of these different kinds of things, depending on what they tend to gravitate towards, depending on what they specialize in. Um, things like visual culture are actually offshoots of the art historical discipline, right? Uh, cultural anthropologists, like people who focus on visual anthropology, are actually adapting a lot of the methodologies and techniques that art historians have established originally. So this is the thing that's so interesting, is that art history has often been stereotyped as this, like, kind of frou-frou discipline. You know, it's just the girls with the pearls who like go and get into art history to like marry their professor or like meet like some guy in college and then get married and have kids. And then I would like, never, talk I would about, never talk accuse about, you talk of about that. the grand masters. No, I don't think that you're accusing me, but that's the stereotype about art historians. And, you know, they'll go show off the grand masters of Renaissance Italy so that they know that they know like the grand masters and their names. But yeah, art history is actually, thing. it's actually about understanding the human experience and understanding human experience um, beyond the text because 
uh, uh, we are surrounded by art and visual objects and, and things all the time that we take for granted completely. We are helping as art historians to make meaning of that. And that's a good thing because the physical objects around us and the things we create and the things we use to express ourselves visually are such an important part of our lives and they're such an important part of our DNA. Um, so art history is essential. It is essential to understanding human beings. And sometimes too, the advantage of like an artwork versus say a text or a book or an essay is that artworks will sometimes reveal um, things that the author might not have intended. Or you can kind of, if you will, like read between the lines, which is interesting because it's a phrase that's used to refer to text, but you can actually do that really well with interpreting mm. artworks and, and mm. objects. Do you have like a uh, foundational conceptual like idea of what it is to be human? Like, why do we create so much stuff? Like, what's in the very background? What's like the origin story for you? Do you, do you allow yourself to go into like just kind of abstract? Like, what the heck are we doing here? Right. Why do we keep on creating things? I guess discourses is one way of conceiving of that. But I think art gives us the tool to express things that language does not compensate for. Language is not enough sometimes. Um, language is, is, a, is a wonderful tool. Here we are gabbing for an hour, yeah. an hour plus, right? It's, it's, it's what language is actually what uh, differentiates human beings from all other animals, right? But so is art. Animals don't create art, only human beings do. And there's a reason for that. It's because one, we have language, but even before there was, say, written language, human beings made art, right? They, they painted on cave walls. Like, we made art before we made a written language, and that, that just alone uh, tells you about how essential art is to the human experience. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you want to call the, the caves in France or the old caves in, like, Namibia or South Africa as, like, that origin story. I mean, there you go. Like, people have always been making art. Uh, of, of any kind, even even making, you know, making a clay bowl that you that's utilitarian is actually an artistic practice. Um, and th that's actually where things like design come in, because design mm -hmm. is where form and function sort of weave in together. Right. Yeah. You, you see a bowl that was made to carry water, oil, but it's also made with these beautiful grooves and incisions on the sides that create patterns. And they help you grip the bowl on the outside in case it's slippery, but they're also, it also makes the bowl beautiful and it gives yeah. it texture and you can engage with it visually. And so the person who's using it every day and when she's you know taking it to carry water and other people see it, oh, that's a beautiful bowl. And it's also utilitarian. Yeah. Uh, that's where, that's where, that's what design is. It's where form and function come in. And so art, you know, if you want to think of, of it on a wider level, inevitably, uh, is defined by design as well. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. I just had this image of, uh, human attention kind of like just being water and it, it'll stay in whatever surface it finds like, Oh, we can, we can meddle around with this, you know, and, and, yeah. you know, the, the design is, uh, functional, but then that also gives a grip not only for our hands in the case of the water jug, but for mm -hmm. our imagination and then yeah. for our status and, and all these other hierarchies that are going on. Absolutely. What, absolutely. What drew you to Egypt? Why did you land there? Uh, I think, I think my family's As origins in Egypt had something yeah. to do with it. Um, I don't know if Sasha's ever talked with you about this, but uh, when we were growing up as kids, 
we grew up around our grandfather's paintings all over the house. Oh, okay. um, he, so he, uh, he actually started, he never gained formal training in the arts, but he started off as an illustrator, uh, in Egypt in about like the fifties and he was making, or as, uh, so he actually first, it was actually through happenstance. He was working at like a tobacco factory, uh, in, I think it was in the forties actually, the late forties. And he was asked as the manager, the floor manager to make like a sort of safety rules or regulations sign for all the employees or staff, but he just, yeah. just designed it very well and he used really beautiful handwriting. So then his higher ups were like, Oh, can you make this for us? And can you make this ad for us? And then it started kind of just snowballing into that. And then he started making, um, caricatures and cartoons for a very famous magazine in Egypt called Rosa Yusuf. And Rosa Yusuf actually, um, it was started around the 1920s. Um, and it, it was famous for making caricature in particular, a major part of its feature in the magazine. And so it became very famous for having caricatures from these very talented artists at the time. So he started off with that. And then he, you know, um, I think around like the sixties, he started dabbling in more like drawing and painting. And then once he had, uh, immigrated to Canada with his family in tow, he started doing more large scale paintings, including abstract ones. So, so we grew up with a lot of those paintings, um, in, in the home. And my mother is an interior designer and she was a stay at home mom when we were little kids, but she'd draw and she'd sketch with us. And sometimes I would sit and I would like draw my family members or I would sit and sketch and stuff like that. So we've always had kind of like this sort of informal appreciation and practice of the arts in the household. Um, That and, you know, growing up, like trying to understand what it meant to be Egyptian or Egyptian American. Um, I was also like an undergrad. I loved art history and I took a course on ancient Egypt and then I took a course on um, African arts like as a survey and I just fell in love and I was like, I've got to be an art history major. And so it was actually my attraction to the arts of ancient Egypt and then the arts of Africa much more widely that actually drew me to the discipline of art history. Um, And I think I've always kind of grappled with this question of, why is it that when you open up a textbook on art, first of all, you hardly ever see anything on African art. Uh, Mm. And then when you do deal with Egypt, it's always just ancient Egypt and nobody ever cares or thinks about modern Egypt at all. It's like as if we never existed. Uh, And then why is it that Mm. Egypt is never considered a part of Africa? And then, and then why is it from there that African art is only envisioned as these things? And the more questions I kept asking myself about the canon of art history, the more determined I became to really try to understand what this modern Egyptian art is. Why did people create it? What kind of place does it have in studying modern African art more widely? Because though there's a sort of, there's been this emerging budding scholarship on modern art from the African continent widely since at least, you know, the nineties. Um, and yeah, I mean, and the rest is, I guess the rest is history, right? That that's all kind of how it started. But yeah, I definitely think I think my my identity and my and my roots with my family were playing a big factor. And I think that um, the fact that Egypt didn't fit into Africa in the canon and Africa didn't connect with Egypt in the canon, that tension is what really drew me to oh, okay. exploring. Yeah. It sounds like there's this huge book that you're going to like 
write that'll like bridge that <laughs> thing. Is that what's yeah. going on? We all want to write that huge book that everybody has so much time to read, like 600 yeah. pages. War and peace, but it's like about our history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's it's amazing. Like I have like all these ideas of like things I want to write and things I want to publish. And um, I'm hoping that like in the future at some point, uh, I can I can be one of those people to contribute to this like larger body of scholarship about modern Egyptian art, about Africa, about Egypt. Um, yeah. One more question: How does uh, teaching uh, dovetail with uh, research for you? Uh, why did you stay in the, the academy and, and was teaching a part of that? And... Right. Um, I mean, I think I like teaching in general. I I like teaching art history. Um, It gives students a really different way of looking at the world that's very fruitful for them. Um, How so? How do you think that opens up uh, curiosity or knowledge? I think it I think it opens up curiosity for some of the reasons I was outlining before that that art is something that actually is all around you. It's not just something that you see in a museum. It's not just Michelangelo's David. Uh, It's actually like so many things around you. So they start to look at their own immediate world very differently. But on a larger level, uh, studying art and its history can also get you to start questioning. And especially when you're learning African art, man, does it really run up against their expectations of what the world is and it really puts Mm. them outside of their comfort zone and in a lot of good ways because they learn that African art is not just the stereotype of like masks and sculptures in the primitive and the rural it's like so many different kinds of things so it gets them to think very differently on a wider level about not only how we're defining art as it is but also like how we're defining Africa or how we're even defining Western culture or how we're defining what it means to be modern. And it really Mm. gets them to think about these really big picture questions um, Mm. that oftentimes I think, I don't want to overstep and I I don't, I don't want to come off as arrogant, but I think that sometimes they don't get confronted with these really tough questions quite enough in like a, in some of their other classes, but at least this is what (laughs) students are telling me like, man, like this is the first time I ever thought about X and Y or geez, I never even thought about it that way. Or I kept talking about this with my friend or my partner after class. I'm like, that's fantastic. That's great. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I can see how art facilitates uh, humanizing that, that distant thing, because once you see art as tied to the human ability to create and interact aesthetically and with status, then you see that all these different cultures are filled with creative beings, just like you Absolutely. are. A... Absolutely. Even when they don't fit the mold of what the artist or artist genius should be, they absolutely are. Mm-hmm. And I think that learning art history right now is especially important because <laughs> we live in a highly visual culture. Like if you think about like even the transition that like young people, for instance, have made from an interface of social media, like Facebook versus Instagram, Look at how much more visually oriented Instagram is versus Facebook. We understand our world through images. We understand our world through images. So if you don't have the tools to think critically about why something looks the way it does, who was originally meant to see it, where was it meant to be seen, how can you understand the formation of knowledge in your wider world? We literally get all of our information through visuals. So art historians 
are incredibly essential right now. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna. If that makes me sound egotistical, that's that's fine. I'm totally fine with that because our discipline, it you know, we are not this kind of froofy, fluffy discipline at all. We are absolutely essential to everybody understanding. This isn't to say that other modes of study or knowledge are not valuable. That is not to say that at all. It's just, I think in the, the world we live in right now, people more than ever before need tools to critically understand what it is they are seeing because what it is they see yeah. is what they know. Yeah, well, well, I would sense. add to not only visual, we're returning back to the oral too, the the oral traditions mm -hmm. rather, mm -hmm. than the, rather than the text because of our technology. Yes. You said something that I like to ask my guests. You said something about thinking critically. What does yeah. that actually mean <laughs> to you? Huh. Thinking critically means not just taking something at face value. But it can also mean asking questions about what it is that you see and what it is you experience. So inevitably, critically thinking about something has to involve and incorporate curiosity. And that curiosity means taking risks, right? Um, being okay with thinking you know something and then being wrong. Uh, uh, listening to others, listening to other kinds of perspectives, right? Especially ones that you don't agree with. Uh, critically thinking necessitates all of these things. And I know that I've, I'm answering your question by describing some of its features, which maybe is not what you're getting at here. Uh, and perhaps that's, that's just kind of where I have to leave it. And that's a limitation of my definition. But when I think of critical thinking, uh, it, is, it is by its very nature, uh, something it is a thinking in which you do not take things for granted, even your own thoughts or your own opinions. Yeah, reactions. right. And, and which which also means that as human beings, we may not always be able to critically think twenty four seven, right? Because it's just not possible for us. Like sometimes we it's just exhausting. have to be human, and we just have to believe what we believe, and we're just you know, like whatever it is, what it is. But there have to be those those times in your day or times in the week where you do have to think critically about something you think you believe or something you think you know mm -hmm. or something that's around you. Are going forward? Are there uh, places where people can find your work? Are you working on anything audiovisual or textual for the greater public to ingest? Yeah. Well, I actually, so I don't, I, I, I actually, so in terms of scholarship, I'm still working on a couple of articles right now. Um, they are yet to be sort of like worked into the world of journals and things like that. So that's something I'm working on. So uh, within the next year or two, people should look out for any articles I've published on uh, images of the Sudan and constructions of African womanhood in modern Egyptian art or hmm. constructions of peasant masculinity in modern Egyptian art. Um, so those are two articles I'm working on now. Um, in terms of like uh, things that are public facing right now, I am the host of a show on public television. Um, it's WMHT. So it's like the regional sort of version of PBS for like Eastern yeah. New York, Massachusetts. Um, and I'm the host of a house for arts or it's called AHA with, with AHA with an exclamation mark. So you can look that up and we actually, have I looked like it up. I only saw like a 60 second clip of you. So oh, okay, maybe no, you can you send can me the watch, link. You can watch full length episodes. If you go to okay. WMHT.org slash AHA, uh, and then I think there's another slash after that. I can send you the link. Uh -huh. 
Um, aha. Yeah. Aha. Um, you can find like full length episodes on there and we've shot about I, this last several ones I've had to actually shoot from zoom because oh, no. I can't go into the studio, but we're planning yeah. to go back to the studio in September. And uh, we talked to all sorts of really awesome people, all part of the local art scene here. And it's free, public, accessible, highly available if anybody wants to watch. So, so that's a good way to engage with the public right now that I'm doing. Uh, and I'm also on the board of directors for the College Art Association, which is the largest international professional organization for people in the arts sector, whether that's artists, art historians, art critics, curators. Um, so CAA or the College Art Association, I'm, I'm the inaugural emerging professional member for the board oh, cool. of directors. So that's a kind of more administrative oh, okay. sort of way of connecting with the public. So it's not so it's not so visual. It's not so public facing in the conventional sense. But I, yeah. I consider it a form of work that certainly um, uh, deals with the sort of administrative side of public service. Okay. With, with yeah. regards to uh, curation and... Uh... With regards to anybody in the arts world internationally, okay. whether... The, I mean, the CAA is actually a major platform and organization for things like professional development for emerging artists and art historians. They have a major annual conference that they do every year, gathering people from all over the world. Um, they are the uh, sort of house or head for like several uh, major art historical journals that publish um, about like art history and 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 provide case studies, such as art bulletin and uh, an art journal. So, so yeah, no, they're they're a fantastic fantastic organization. You sound so busy. Yeah, I am busy. You sound like a busy person. <laughs> that's, like, that's like the biggest understatement <laughs> ever, especially with this pandemic. Because I'm teaching everything online. You no. have to learn everything within like two months. They're like, be a master of online pedagogy. That takes you five years to learn, but learn it in two months. And I'm like, okay. So it's, uh, <laughs> it is busy. It is busy. Wow. Um, but, but I guess that, I guess that's a good thing too. I mean, unfortunately a lot of folks have lost their jobs right now. So knock on wood, um, I'm, I'm doing okay and I'm busy and it can be tiring. It can be a little exhausting, but it, it can be a good thing too. Yeah. You can just arrange a bunch of stress, uh, toys under, under the camera, you just like <laughs> grips and stuff and, you know, get off camera and just like break some stuff, you know, Yeah, break some stuff. Cause yeah. some plates around the corner. Right. Well, right. Right. Thanks for having, uh, coming on. I was going to say having me on your show, but you're on my show. So thanks for joining me. <laughs> <laughs> I would bring you on a house for ours. Be like, I'm here with Benjamin Boyce. Talk about ours. I can yeah, do no, that, thank I guess. Thank you so much for having me on here. And I look forward to more conversations. Yeah, please. Especially if you want to talk about like men or manhood or masculinity, I'm totally game. I think it's a fascinating topic. Is it? Yeah. Oh, you're looking at me suspiciously. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> a lot to talk about that does it make you uncomfortable though like as a man if i'm saying as a woman like oh this is a fascinating topic no. oh, okay. All right. i find i find women fascinating myself okay. that's why okay. i end up talking to them so because I, I just like what are you and you yeah know, so <laughs> I, I i appreciate that you're you're asking those questions from the other side of the great divide yeah, yeah. No, I would love to have a conversation about that because it's this is actually a relatively recent interest of mine. It emerged while I was writing my dissertation and I wasn't huh. anticipating being interested in representations of men or masculinity. But as I started yeah. analyzing these four paintings at the Agricultural Museum, yeah, I was yeah. like, this is getting really interesting. And it kind of snowballed from there. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
amazing, fascinating stuff. I th- yeah, I, 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 I'm concerned a lot with the representation of the female, especially in, in literature, and and uh, there's a lot of things. So it'd be it's it. I don't think you can define a man without woman and woman without man. I think that they're, sure. they're kind of they're very interlocking uh, right. constructs, you know, right. and very fruitful yeah. when they get together, uh, or right. you know catastrophic so just right. trying to conceptualize them i think there's a lot of work to do uh, especially with regards to giving tools to young people to kind of understand what it is to be uh, a cultured gendered you know sexed being uh, sure. which i think there's some things that are very tense about that conversation that that uh yeah. in our culture and yeah. i'm sure in, in all cultures right right absolutely i just think we haven't given you're right that they that the woman and man are these interlocking ideas that depend on each other. I think we just we've devoted a lot of scholarship and attention to representations of women, and we've devoted very little in comparison to men. And that itself tells me, oh, do we hmm. take men and what they mean to us for granted, right? Yeah. Are we taking for granted the role that masculinity might play in these ideas, larger ideas about what it means to be human, larger ideas about what it means to be a citizen, larger ideas about what yeah. it means to be creative? Uh, are we are we kind of overlooking something really big here? It's not to say that people have never written about it. It's just to say that body of scholarship is so small compared Uh-oh. to like... There's another big book there. That's yeah. what you're saying. I, there's, there tone. might be many big books that may <laughs> exist at some point. Who knows? <laughs> well, thank you for uh, bringing your female gaze onto my show. Oh, and, you're uh, welcome. And I promise that it's not that perverted. <laughs> sometimes you get really creeped out. Like I taught a male body in art course last semester and I joked around with the students. I'm like, you're probably wondering who the heck this pervert is teaching this. And they all cracked up because it's just, you know, people sometimes I think wonder. But anyway, we can talk about it more uh, in another conversation. Let's do that. Let's set something up. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Benjamin, it was such a pleasure talking with you. And then maybe next time I can see your cats, too. Okay. Yeah. We're getting new cats next weekend or next week. So new cats. Our family is growing. Yeah. Two kittens, uh, uh, Siamese and a calico or like a gray swipey one. Do you you guys have cats? No, we don't have any pets, actually. But weird. Weird. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. You you work from home. Why, Why not have a fish at least? I know fish. Yeah, I mean a fish. You know, I think you can't compare that to a cat. Like a cat. No, I was just saying, like some sort of living entity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Keep yeah. I know. Maybe down the line we might get like a like a pet or something like that. So okay. yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, have a great rest of your day. And it was a pleasure chatting. And hopefully we'll chat again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Laura. All right. Take care, Benjamin. All right. Ciao. Please work. Uh, please work. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.